Good afternoon. It's good to see you. Those who were here yesterday and those who are here for the first time today, you're welcome. And uh, much of what I've got to say today um, hasn't been said yesterday, so if you weren't here yesterday, you won't have a problem picking up on it. We're dealing with the subject of elders over three sessions, and it was a challenge yesterday um, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, primarily this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop or the work of an overseer, he desires a good work. And the challenge was about that desire. Um, we're going to turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please, and read some more verses from that chapter just now. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth... A good work, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behaviour, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy or filthy looker, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Then over to chapter 5, please, and verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also May fear. A verse in First Thessalonians chapter five, perhaps. First Thessalonians chapter five and verse number twelve. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. Now we're sure that the Lord does bless his word when we read it publicly and when we consider it together. What then is the role of an elder? Now yesterday we were seeing that the word elder and the word shepherd or pastor and the word overseer are different words that refer to the same role in a local church. And they refer to the same individual, the same person, and they speak to that person's maturity, and they speak to that person's activity and role and function, and also they speak to that person's heart in relation to the people of God. These words uh, just kind of summarise these things, but it is one role, it is one person, and different aspects and features of that role and of that person. When we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I could have read into Titus 
chapter 1, you have instruction in different contexts, one for uh, the uh, setting in place of elders, and Paul instructs Titus about that, and Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's writing to an established uh, context, Timothy was in Ephesus, and there were elders in Ephesus, and this is a reminder of the character, the qualifications, isn't a great word, the character and function of elders and deacons in this chapter. And we want to think about elders, the first part of the chapter, together. And there are some general words that we can take out of these passages to give us an idea and instruct us as to the function, the role of an elder within a local church. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 5, it says, If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And so you have the idea of a caretaker. Now, you maybe didn't think of your elders as jannies, and they're not jannies, um, but they are caretakers of the house of God. And if you like that kind of line of ministry, you could take that away down a line and think about the physical building and a caretaker of that physical building. And then you think of the spiritual building and the caretaker of the spiritual aspect. And there is an idea of an illustration in that. To take care, which is interesting, that the elder and elders, and we noticed the plurality of them yesterday, have a responsibility. It is part of their function to have a concern for the stability, for the welfare, for the growth, spiritual growth of the Christians that form part of that local church. And to do so, not as an end in itself, but rather that the name of the Lord might be glorified amongst these people. And the name of Christ might be exalted. And so the happiness, the numerical increase, if that takes place, the outreach activity of a local church is not the ultimate end. But rather this, the exaltation of Christ amongst his people. The glory of God demonstrated, manifested, displayed and experienced amongst his people is the ultimate goal. And to this end, the happiness of the saints, the fruitfulness of the saints and all the other things will work to that end. But that is not an end in itself. You see, that's very important because if the happiness of the saints was the ultimate and the end in itself, then we really could take a lot of the Bible and put it to one side and accomplish that by all sorts of means and in all sorts of ways the saints could be happy. Maybe not, but they could be happy. And if you think about the joy of the saints or the fellowship of the saints, that again could apply. But remember this, the name of Christ must be honoured. That God must be glorified amongst his people. And so as the elders take care of the church of God, the ultimate in view is God's glory. And these things must work towards that and have these things and have that in view. 
But then in chapter 5 and verse 17, so we have this idea of taking care. And then in chapter 5 and verse 17, it speaks about the elders who rule. And the idea there is to direct the affairs of the church. The word rule literally means to stand first and speaks of the general concept of leadership which is common to these group of men. And so they have to stand first. They have to be an example. They have to be leaders. They have to be those who can and ought to be followed. They are not a group of people, as I mentioned yesterday, like a board of directors who issue edicts from a lofty place on high, but rather this, showing an example amongst the saints and in front of the saints, but never behind. Never behind. You know, it's not the idea of the First World War where the generals were way behind the front line barking orders and it was the troops in the front line who'd go over the top. The idea of the elders is much more, and we heard a wee bit of history yesterday, I love history too. The idea of the elders is the officer in the trench who blows the whistle and then clambers out first. That's the idea. And the troops follow him into the conflict. And so an elder has to take care of the church of God and an elder has to rule, but that rule is the rule of example, that rule is the rule of leadership, that rule is the rule of courage and of decisiveness and of gentleness and it's a complex combination. Then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 we discover some more words that speak about the function and role of an elder. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Admonish you. Now, I like, uh, if you've got some of the uh, various uh, online Bibles and various uh, helps online, you, you might have, um, or you may have the hard copy, and you may be old school, I've got the hard copy and the online copy, but I use the online copy, and it's Robertson's Word Pictures, which I find quite helpful. And Robertson's work picture says this about admonition, I like it. Putting sense into people's heads. Putting sense into people's heads. Admonish. Making people see sense. That is the function of elders. So you can see taking care, labouring among, admonishing. Ruling those who have a heart, those who who are admonishing, yes, those who are labouring, those who are ruling, and these are words in a these are general words that speak about the function and role of elders in the local church. When you come to First Timothy chapter three, it is interesting to me, at least, that the only qualification or characteristic that we read in chapter three that relates to a specific function is to be able to teach. Able to teach. (coughs) Now, could I just say this? And I've been challenging the young men in particular yesterday because this is a role for a man in a local church. But could I just challenge us all? Do we value this function of an elder, an overseer in a local church. We should. I would judge this that there has been and continues to be too little emphasis upon this in a local assembly. 
the need for elders to teach. Not to import teaching. That's other people who are teaching. But the need for elders to teach. They must be apt to teach. It is part of the function. It's a priority. You see, without it, and without the knowledge conveyed, without that knowledge of Scripture, and without the ability to convey that knowledge and instruct the saints in the truth of God, and that is not just this means of instructing, speaking, you know, in front of an audience of people, but to communicate and to instruct and to teach one-to-one or in a small group or in whatever context, but to be able to give an explanation and an answer to the issues of life from Scripture so that it's not homespun wisdom and it's not cliches and it's not things that have no basis and foundation and it's not an expression of your preferences or your personality but it's the word of God brought to bear you see elders should be teachers so that their leadership is based upon scripture so that their care is based upon scripture so that their rule is scriptural and biblical apt to teach well, if we had read in Titus, and I'd recommend you do that, if you're looking at this subject, you would read, in fact, just turn over to Titus chapter 1, and you'll see it in, in Titus. It's the parallel section to the one that we read in Timothy. There's a different context, as I mentioned, uh, and Titus... He has to, it's interesting, he doesn't say not a novice here because these are new assemblies and in a sense everyone's a novice in a new assembly. And so he's to ordain elders in verse 5, in every city as I had appointed thee, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. Then he comes to verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So here is a man who has put himself in the way of Bible teaching, who has been taught himself And this is part of the challenge to the young men in this audience. The elders of tomorrow. Are you in your present situation as a young man? Aware of the need to live a holy life. Aware of the need to have the Holy Spirit forming these characteristics that we're going to delve into in a second. These characteristics in you. Are you aware of the need for that? And are you putting yourself in the way of Bible teaching? Are you teachable? Are you being taught? It's a great thing to come to a conference, obviously. We're glad you're here, and so on. But really, that's not what this is about. This is about the daily, weekly, monthly routines of getting into Scripture and listening and being teachable and reading and studying and, and allowing the, the Spirit of God to shape your convictions and your beliefs from truth 
These men, Paul says to Titus, they have been taught. And those who have been taught, in turn, will be able to teach. They will be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. You see, when you turn 40, not that bad, by the way, when you turn 40, you don't just switch, flick a switch, and get promoted to the oversight, and then all's well. That's a disaster. You see, when you are 20, when you are 15 even, when you're the age like those ages, you begin to get into your Bible and you begin to be taught. And it's not an overnight process. It's an ongoing process where God is going to shape your character. He's going to change you and mould you for his service. Now, my application is a narrow application of that in this context. It has a broad application to life in general, but I'm keeping to this narrow focus in my ministry that if you are going to be used by God in a coming day, should God call you and raise you to this role within his assembly? To be frank, you need to know your Bible. You'll need to know your Bible. You will need to be able to turn and to help others from Scripture. And so it says here, by sound doctrine, the word sound just means healthy, our word hygienic comes from it. And, and sound doctrine it is aimed at the spiritual health and well-being of an individual. So it doesn't focus on, um, in Titus he speaks about Jewish myths and the commandments of men. Myths and the commandments of men. Listen, these things do not have the value of the word of God. They don't help you. They don't bring spiritual joy and, and sustenance to your soul. These things, the commandments of men. Do this, do that. Just do it. Just do it. Be this, be that, just be it. Myths, you know this, where do you get that from? No idea. Myths. And what a difference to be able to turn to scripture and to, to have a discussion and to, to be educated from divine truth. And so he says, to be able by sound doctrine, not rants, not, not um, flights of fancy, not plucking things out of context and making them um, a substantiation or, or making them a justification for something. That diminishes and that devalues the truth of God. But to be educated in it and to communicate it in its fullness and in its vitality and in its preciousness and have that brought to bear upon the saints. What a difference. Sound doctrine. And you know that word doctrine, it does, it's kind of got a negative connotation sometimes. People with the word doctrine and they think, okay, time for a snooze. I'm going to get all technical now, and so on. 
You know, really, see, I don't know, but when you, get, when you start to investigate the doctrines of the Bible, there is, a, there is such a, a vast richness to divine truth. That's it. As a believer, it just grabs your, your mind and your heart, and, and it's hard to describe the effect of it upon it as you meditate upon it, and you let it just turn in your mind the, the wonder of the things that God has revealed to us. The wonder of his character, the wonder of his person, the wonder of his great redemptive purposes in his son. The future he has for us in Christ. The blessings, the the cost of it. And you get stuck into your Bible, you young folk, and you discover that in this book there is a treasure trove. And it is healthy. It's sound doctrine. You don't need to twist and to bend and to pervert it. It's all there. You just need to get into it. Just need to get into it. I would would plead and encourage young men and young sisters equally. Should have said that. I apologise for that. Equally. To be a student of your Bible. And if not before, then from now. Sound up. And for the elder, it's so important because being an elder is not behaviour modification. Sadly, that's often what we are involved in, behaviour modification. That's not the true essence of being an elder. It's not to to shape people's behaviour into a mould. It is that people would grow spiritually and that the Spirit of God would would be working in their life and that they would be growing spiritually and yes behavior changes of course it changes but it changes for the right reasons not because you put a straitjacket on someone that as soon as they can unpadlock it it falls off again but that within their heart there is a desire to be like Christ and to follow Christ and to love Christ and and they've, they've, they've discovered that there are ways to do this and to show it and to grow in this from scripture themselves do you know I can remember things that I learned when I was a student Way, way, way back. In the primitive, I was talking to Steve Rankin about West Park Halls. Only the best people were in West Park Halls in Dundee. But you know, I can remember getting my first concordance emails from Dundee, got me it. And I can remember just getting a few Bible study tools together. I had a strong concordance from Ian, and someone brought me a Vines dictionary. I thought it was made of a spurgeon in the making. What else do you need? Strong concordance and a Vines dictionary, and off you go. And then I graduated to a Newbury Bible that I can never ever and still can't work out how to use. And so the only problem was it had a brown cover, which was a wee bit dodgy. But apart from that, you see, I can remember hours spent in that room. That's probably why I had a research or two. I can remember hours spent in that room studying my Bible. And I can remember, even although I wasn't very good at it, I can remember I learned things then myself. I've never forgotten. You know, I've read things that other people have taught and, and I've forgotten a lot of things. But the things you learn for yourself, you never forget. You never forget. They're precious. Discovering things from, it's like a little nugget. I, I didn't plan to say this. There was a man called Fred Stalin, who's known to many here, who was in, a, in Linwood Assembly, neighbouring assembly. And I used to talk to him often about books. He was a great student. 
and he would give me a book to find in the second-hand bookshops in Glasgow, and I used to go looking for it. And I can remember the absolute joy of finding Westcott and First John and Westcott and John's Gospel. I can remember finding Trench's synonyms and so on, and, and just discovering these absolute nuggets, these fantastic resources of Bible study and truth. Get into your Bible. And so that you might be able when the time comes. And Titus says, to exhort, to exhort, means to call near, means to encourage. And yes, to urge to obedience, there's that idea, but to encourage and comfort, there's that idea too. And not just to, to exhort, but also to challenge, to correct, to convince the gainsayers. A couple of quotes. The elder doesn't simply agree with divine truth. His heart is wrapped up in divine truth. He holds fast to the faithful word of biblical teaching. And he teaches in accordance with that word. He's able to exhort in sound doctrine. He has an ability to incline faithful Christians to belief and obedience. He's able to refute those who contradict the gospel. He's able to defend the faith. You cannot do that if you've never studied your Bible until you're 40 or 50 years of age. Just can't do it. Just can't. Now's the time. Now's the time to get that foundation laid and to get the word of God seeping into your very personality and seeping into your consciousness from a young age. Calvin wrote this, that the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep, another for driving off the wolves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. Exhorting and convincing. Gathering in and chasing away. Teaching. And could I encourage those of my fellow elders in the uh, hall here to encourage and give opportunity and stimulation to young men and young women in the study of their Bibles. And to give opportunity for the gift of teaching to be expressed in your own assembly. I can remember great opportunities. Ian Mayer's name came up again. He used to take me around, poor soul. I can remember 17. And back down in Scotland, back Scotland, back down the way in the main, uh, main area of Scotland, <laughs> between Glasgow and Edinburgh and Midbelt. It used to be if you went to take a gospel meeting, you had to take a ministry meeting as well, whether you liked it or not. And that was pretty brutal for the saints because the people like me turning up at 17 to minister to them, and they were very gracious. But the truth is just this, it got you into your Bible. And these opportunities were important. Teaching. Secondly, secondly, shepherding. Shepherding. Now these are not disconnected things. There's a different emphasis in these things. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that I referred and read yesterday, said this, Take heed therefore, Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, unto yourselves and to all the flock, all the flock, over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. And so you have the idea of a shepherd and a flock. You have the idea of feeding, teaching, instructing, shepherding, caring. The Lord Jesus is, of course, the greatest example. And when you look at how he conducted himself and how he shepherded the group of disciples, it's very instructive, that relationship between him and his disciples. But it is interesting, I think, because Paul speaks to these Ephesian elders about problems that would arise, I think, from within that group of elders. And it is important to understand this. I often say this, and people will smile when I say it, but it's a, it's a truth, although it's a bit brutal. That you must be careful to shepherd the sheep and not the wolves. So often we shepherd the wolves and we shoot the sheep. An elder needs to be able to discern what is a wolf and what is a sheep. You don't behave the same to both. What kind of shepherd invites a wolf in amongst his flock? What kind of shepherd when he sees a wolf in amongst his flock doesn't shoot it? You see, you shepherd sheep and you shoot wolves. You must have the discernment to be able to know which is which. That's not easy. And often we shepherd the wolf, the person who's destructive, the person who's come to steal and to kill and to destroy, the person who may not even be a believer, the person who's a problem, a serious problem, and they consume the whole time of those who are elders and overseers. They're being shepherded at great cost to the rest of the flock. You shepherd the sheep. You shoot the wolves. And the shepherd must understand the difference between the two. A shepherd must lead by example. And then we'll come on to First Timothy 3 now just for a few minutes. But a shepherd must lead by example. And a shepherd must be able to relate to people. Now, uh, Stuart was saying about when he was much younger, being uh, particularly shy. I've never been afflicted with shyness in that sense. Um, but I, I do, uh, don't have a natural empathy with people. You know, we have a kind of uh, family ethos which is, goes like this, just go on with it. That would be our kind of ethos. Which is not always healthy or good. And so you need to be able to understand these things about yourself. To relate to people. The Lord Jesus was so good at this. My sheep hear my voice. And follow me. In amongst the people. Relating to the people. Not distant. And not different in that sense. So if these are some, and I could have, I have to cut that short, but there's many more, it's a really good study to, to look into the function of an overseer. But what kind of individual can possibly fulfill such a function? 
That's when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is the section that people become obsessed by in that idea of, of, of bringing a kind of template and putting it against an individual and saying, well, you know, forget him. He doesn't tick all these boxes or, or forget that or, you know, that he's not, he's not an elder. He's not functioning as an elder. Look, this, I can find a verse in here and there's something he doesn't do very well. That's not the purpose of this chapter. But what we have here is what kind of man can God use to shepherd his people? What is the, the necessary sort of character, characteristic? Well, look at chapter 3 and verse 2, and it says this, An overseer, a bishop, then must be, must be, blameless. Here's the overriding word. And the idea is that he must be, it's the present participle of the verb, to be. He must be in a present state of blamelessness. No cloud of doubt hanging over him. No kind of whispers about dodgy business dealing or dodgy morality or the sort of guy that you know women like to stay clear of. All of that kind of stuff has to be absent. He has to be blameless. There's no one who can actually bring an accusation against this man and make it stick in all areas of his life. You see, that's a very high standard. That's actually the standard we should all be aspiring to. But it should be exemplified in the elder, demonstrated, seen, that we might follow and be like that, every single one of us, male and female, it doesn't matter. We ought to be blameless in our lives. And he's going to speak about four areas. Can I suggest four areas where we should be blameless? There's different ways of looking at this. Number one, moral character. We live in a very filthy world. Those who lead God's, God's people, they need to have a certain moral character. Home life cannot be separated from church life. They're not able to be separated maturity there has to be maturity those who lead God's people in life need to know something about life and they need to have had the experience of God in their lives to lead by example and reputation Amongst the ungodly. Reputation. What would they say about you if you went into their place of work? These are four areas where, and it's a high standard, but listen, I'm speaking again to the young, and excuse me for doing that, but it's the burden of this ministry. These are the sorts of areas where we need to make sure that we are allowing God to prepare us. Shape us in orbit in early life. Moral character. Verse number two. The husband of one wife. And I know there are different views about this expression. And I'm not going to debate these views. My own view is just this. That the literal translation is, and it's often repeated, a one woman man. And there's no definite article. It's not the husband of one wife. 
And I judge, therefore, that it is character rather than status that's in view. This is the character of the individual, in my view, here. And it appears to me, and I know there's different views, but it appears to me that here is an individual who is devoted to that one woman in his life. Devoted. To put it into slightly coarser terminology, he will not have a wandering eye. Not a wandering eye. He's trustworthy in relation to his morality. He is not going to do something. He's not going to be somewhere. He's not going to be flirtatious. He's not going to be inappropriate in his words and conversation with other women. He's going to be the sort of husband, the sort of man who can be trusted in this area. Mind you, we all should be. We all should be. And if ever there was something that makes a man stand out from his peers in this world today, it is moral character. A husband of one wife. Vigilant. This is the idea of sobriety. It does come originally from literally sobriety. And it comes from the idea of something unmixed and unmixed with wine. And then it it changed usage to speak about sobriety in general, in terms of character. And so here is someone who will not allow himself to sink to the level where his pleasures are primarily those of the senses, but rather of the soul. So he will have a balance in his life. He will have a balanced, controlled lifestyle without excess and always with a clear mind. A clear mind. Vigilant. Sober means well-disciplined. Actually, carries the connotation of someone who's serious about spiritual things. Serious about spiritual things. You know, we get serious about all sorts of things. And I don't mean serious as in like a serious looking face. I mean that your life indicates how serious you take spiritual things. And so you have the sort of character. One ancient writer put it this way. A man who is sober does not have the reputation of a clown. He's not a clown. He's not a class joker. He's someone who sees the serious issues of life and is serious about those issues. You know, the guy who's the clown and the class joker and all that kind of stuff is fine when everything is happy and, you know, everything's going well and, you know, everyone's laughing and so on. He's not the guy that anyone goes to when things go wrong. No, he's not. It's the person who's sober. Steady, straight, dependable, reliable, with integrity. They're the people. Of good behaviour. This is the idea of having an orderly system of living. Now a good place to start, young men and young women, is in your bedroom. And what better way to learn orderly living than making your bed and tidying your room 
and having structure to your day and you think that's completely irrelevant no it's not actually it's not you see an orderly systematic way of living is essential in order to be fruitful for God and effective for God if your life is chaotic then it just will remain chaotic things won't get done people will get missed, overlooked and all sorts of things like that that is no way to be a leader amongst God's people you can't just be missing appointments and missing, um, you know, forgetting to text someone when you said they would, forgetting to pray for people when they've asked you to, because you've got no system in place, you've got no order in your life. It's just chaos. And so he says, good behavior, an orderly system of living, a discipline in life, someone who gives you responsibility and then you take responsibility and you don't let them down. You fulfill the responsibility. You do what you say you're going to do. You know the opposite word to this? Chaos. It's actually the opposite word. Given to hospitality. We'll just run through these uh, quite quickly. Given to hospitality means love of the stranger. It doesn't just mean having folk around for supper. Now don't let me put you off and folk around for supper. That's a fine thing to do. But you know, that's really not given to hospitality. Given to hospitality is actually to show kindness and hospitality to people you don't know. Not just people that you do. And so someone who's, and I'll be honest with you, you know, my instinct would be the opposite here. To have a more closed life. But actually scripture says you have to have an open life. Let people in. Apt to teach. I've spoken about that. Verse number three. Not given to wine. Ah, now here we come to this issue of wine. Take me two or three uh, sessions to begin to get into what scripture says. This whole issue of wine, alcohol, strong drink and so on. And that's not my purpose. This man has a reputation. And his reputation is not as a drinker. He doesn't have a reputation as a drinker. You see, alcohol has an effect upon the mind, the body, cognitive abilities and so on. And if someone is going to be clear-headed in leadership and be sensitive to the issues of the flock, then in my view, and in fact, Scripture says, not given to one. Not given to one. No striker. No. You don't resolve things by getting violent. I mean, I... I can you imagine? You maybe can. An oversight meeting with the boxing gloves hanging up in the, the coat hook. And, you know, there's only one way to solve this outside. And we'll see what's what. Um, it might actually have a shorter oversight meeting than some of them, right enough, but three rounds. But here is someone who's not violent. Can I just say this? That also means not violent behind closed doors. In the home. Violence is not a go-to for this individual. He doesn't express himself in violence. He doesn't get his own way in violence. He's not violent to his family. He's not violent to his wife. This is no characteristic to have as a shepherd. You know, a shepherd had a crook and the, you know, the, and the staff, and the idea was that he was violent towards the enemies of the flock, but not towards the flock itself. He's tender. No striker. That's not a football position, by the way. Just no striker. Patient 
means he is considerate, he's gracious, he's gentle, and so you go on. He, he's not a brawler. In other words, he's not quarrelsome. He's not quarrelsome. He's not hard to go on with. He's not hard to arrive at a decision with. He's not a fighter. You know, you get some people in their default position is to go into combat mode. Dig a trench, put on a tin hat and jump in. And that's the fastest starting off point. And then once you're in a trench, no. Someone who's not a brawler, not pugnacious, not covetous either. And in verse 4, very quickly, he rules well his own house. This is not easy, is it? Some people have difficult home lives whose children cause them so much sorrow and pain. But how someone behaves towards their family in their own home is a very strong indicator as to how they would behave towards God's family in the house of God. Many a parents had their heart broken by their children. Many. Perhaps many in this room. How you conduct yourself towards your children in grace, in authority, in structure, that they might be in subjection, is very important when it comes to being an elder. That's why it says in verse 5, For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? If you are incompetent as a parent, not uncaring but incompetent, you will be incompetent as an elder. If you cannot rule well, in other words, engender respect, show kindness, be wise. And yes, that will involve various decisions. And yes, if children are not walking as you would have them walk, that will involve decisions and difficult discernment on your part. Yes, but that's true as well with the saints. <coughs> and so he says to rule well. Not a novice, I've mentioned that, lest he be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And finally, to be of good report, good reputation, good testimony. You know, it's very, very encouraging when you come across the testimony from an unsaved person about a Christian that you know and it's a good one. It's really encouraging. You know, to speak well of a Christian that you know. Speak about, you know, them being kind and honest. Basic good things. Uh, and these are excellent and these are necessary and so if you are going to be an elder, then you must have a reputation for righteousness. Don't be stealing. For moral character in the workplace, watch your mouth, watch your eyes, watch your ears. Be careful. For love and kindness and generosity and goodness in the community that God has placed you, which is a local church, to honour him. To exalt the name of Christ above all things. 
in your service for God, which is so onerous amongst his precious people. You know, the problem with speaking like that is like a lot of you young men said, well, <laughs> no thanks. Absolutely no thanks. That sounds awful. That's so difficult. And such a standard. That's right. It is difficult. And yes, it is a very high standard. And Stuart posed the question, why would anyone desire? Why would anyone desire? I wholly concur with what he said. Any reason that falls short of what Stuart said just won't cut it. There has to be a loving desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with an honesty about the fitness that you have to do so as an elder amongst his people. Don't be a coward. Don't be a kind of shadow cabinet member that you want influence without taking any responsibility. That'll not do. Don't be someone who whispers in the background. If you cannot step up, <coughs> let your voice be silent. Let the elders be elders. And if God has fitted you to be one, then you step up. You start serving, 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 serving. And if it be that you're recognised as such, good and well, if not, just keep serving. But don't be one of those who undermine those who are serving God as elders. May God bless his work. Thank you very much, Stephen. We're going to sing a hymn.